Beginning in the 60s, our culture began a transformation from what's called a monophasic culture, which takes its view of reality and ourselves from just one state of consciousness, to a polyphasic culture, which looks at multiple states of consciousness, meditative, psychedelic, introspective. And one of the incredible explorers of this is Dr. Chris Pache, a professional philosopher and theologian who took 73 doses, high doses of LSD in an attempt to explore the farther reaches of human nature. Join us in part one of this intriguing dialogue where we explore truly what is some of the most remarkable experiences a human being can have. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is the distinguished John Dupuy, and our guest today is truly remarkable Chris Bache, who is an internationally known professor of philosophy and religious studies, an author, an award-winning teacher, and an internationally known speaker. Usually in these dialogues, John and I try to stay in the background, but the topic of today is so remarkable, the experiences described so literally out of this world, that I want to just give a, take a moment to give a context for the discussion. Compared to the world's many cultures, Western culture is unusual in a variety of ways. In fact, researchers have recently described us as weird W-I-E-R-D, Western, industrialized, educated, rich, and democratic. And so much research has been done on Westerners that it was assumed that our characteristics were pretty much common to the world's cultures. But now we're beginning to see that, that that's not true and that other cultures have their own richnesses and gifts of a wide variety. One very important distinction between traditional Western culture and most of the world's cultures is in their attitude and use of altered states of consciousness. The anthropologist Erika Bouginon discovered in her world survey that over 90% of the world's cultures have institutionalized altered states of consciousness, meaning that they use a variety of practices to induce specific states of consciousness, and then mine them for their information and wisdom. They use and venerate states such as dreams, hypnosis, a trance of various kind, and states induced by meditation, contemplation, yoga, asceticism, a wide variety. And these cultures anthropologists now call polyphasic, meaning that they draw their understanding of reality from many phases of consciousness. By contrast, Western culture is pretty unique in having been, until very recently, a monophasic culture, in that we draw our understanding of ourselves and the world almost entirely from the usual waking state and kind of look down on other states as inferior or deluded or distorted in various ways. 
That's begun to change, and it began to change in the 60s, of course, with the introduction of psychedelics to the culture, which was soon followed by an influx of Asian practices, meditation, yoga, contemplations. And after that, by the rediscovery and rebirth of Western contemplative practices. So that now we have in the West a wide variety of practices for inducing altered states, and the West is undergoing a dramatic and very important but often unrecognized transformation from a monophasic culture to a polyphasic culture, one in which we are now beginning to appreciate and research and draw our understanding of ourselves and reality from multiple states of consciousness. One of the most potent and remarkable ways of inducing altered states is with psychedelics. That's what started our own Western culture's transformation. And it's now the subject of a lot of solid research at places like one of the leaders is John Hopkins University, where scientists and, re and clinical clinicians are discovering that psychedelics have, just as the original research in the 60s and 70s found, a wide variety of therapeutic applications. And perhaps uh, most surprising, very profound spiritual applications, the capacity for inducing profound openings to radically altered states in which profound vistas and understandings of ourselves and realities become available. That, of course, is not new to the rest of the world, but is, is new to Western research. And the findings are quite remarkable. So we're very fortunate in having with us a man who has devoted his life to the research of these curious chemicals and has done it both through academic research and comparative cultural analysis, but also through a remarkably intense, long-lasting, carefully analyzed and documented systematic exploration of the use of these chemicals themselves. His experiences are nothing less than extraordinary and have far, far reaching implications for our understanding of the fundamental nature of reality in ourselves. He did this in a, as a systematic investigation into the fundamental nature of reality. And he was able to reflect on his firsthand observations with the eye of a trained researcher, philosopher, theologian. And then he pulled together cross-cultural, historical, and religious evidence to bring to bear on his own investigations. That's so these are some of the remarkable things our guest Chris Bache has explored. I mentioned that he was a prolific author, and his books include Dark Night, Early Dawn, subtitle Steps to a Deep Ecology of Mind. He's also taught about and written about education and is an award-winning educator himself, and his book is titled The Living Classroom. And most recently, he wrote the literally mind-boggling book, LSD in the Mind of the Universe, in which he detailed his exploration of psychedelics and the insights they opened for him. So that's a long introduction, but it felt important to give a context for these very remarkable experiences that Chris will be gifting us with in sharing his insights over the many years of deep systematic exploration. 
I've just spent the weekend going back to the book. I read it uh, a couple of years ago in manuscript form and was impressed enough to write mm -hmm. a review for it. And I've been spending the weekend with it. And once again, I feel like I've had my worldview expanded multiple times and my understanding of myself and reality challenged multiple times, all in very valuable ways. So, Chris, that's a long introduction, but it's truly a delight and an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Roger. It's a very warm introduction, and I'm just delighted to be here with you and John today. It's a pleasure. Well, there are many places we can go with this, and hopefully we will, but... Uh, Roger, allow me to give my little two cents. Please, uh, yes. Last week, Roger asked me, would you like to have Christopher Pache on? I was like, seriously? <laughs> yes. I had one week or less than a week. So immediately I ordered the book. I got the audio version. Thank God. And that's what that's kept me through the weekend. But I just want to put out there your book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, was one of the more important books uh, for me personally that I've ever read. So when your name came up again, the possibility to have this conversation. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what I, my, I can't remember all the specifics, but after 20 years, it's been a while. When I first read it, I had a stabilized understanding of non-duality based on my explorations and journeys and vision questing and fasting and prayers and meditation and all that. And I, I, I kind of got it, but the way you expressed it, something in that book just consolated it. And it has been accessible to me in a stable form ever since then. So that's, that's a tremendous gift. So this book that I've been listening to is unlike anything that I've experienced. And it is either you're absolutely sane or you're completely insane. <laughs> and my, uh, my experiences along these lines says this really stinks of deep truth. Also the very human, the very humble way that you present and self-revelatory what's going on in your personal life and how you did it and everything is uh, somebody with an open mind, I think is just ends up trusting you. I'm in the hands of somebody I can listen to. And then from there, it goes on to, it's very big. This may be a bringing together of everything we've been working on in our generation, but in a new holistic, religious, scientific, everything vision that transforms us from a reality where a lot of us are killing ourselves and live in deep depression to an absolutely a thousand percent changed view of reality. And I'm not using that as hyperbole, at least I'm not trying to. It's that big. It's that radical. It's that pay attention to this. Thank you. Your description, John, touches me very deeply. And it really touches me that something I've written has influenced your experience of non-duality. That just really touches me. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Chris, I think everyone will want to know what motivated you to begin this extraordinary quest. And maybe you can just say, say a little bit about what sure. the nature of what you actually did yeah. uh, to induce these remarkable experiences. And, and what motivated you to begin? Well, all my life, I've had a, just a deep passion to understand our universe. I mean, I was in the seminary starting in high school, training to be a Catholic priest, left that 
went on to get a degree in theology from Notre Dame and then Cambridge and Brown. I finished Brown in philosophy of religion, but an absolute convinced agnostic with strong atheistic inclinations. But the passion to understand what's real, why is there so much suffering in the world? Is there an intelligence in existence was still there, still pushing me in all of my studies. Now, I had finished my dissertation. I was looking for where to go next, and I encountered Stan Groff's book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, that extraordinary book that just turned my life around. And one reading, he convinced me that LSD or psychedelics could be used safely if you use them in a pro with proper precautions to explore the deep structure of one's consciousness. And some of his anecdotes also indicated more than one's own personal unconscious, that one could reach out deeper to explore deeper fabric of consciousness. And I quickly realized the, the philosophical significance, not just psychological significance of his work. So I realized that people in my profession, philosophy of religion, my discipline, would soon, the ones making the most important contribution to the field would be people writing out of an experiential basis, not just an intellectual basis. To do that, you have to have not just a few experiences, but you have to undergo systematic training in the discipline. So that's what I did. It was 1979 when I began what became a 20-year journey. I worked for four years. I stopped for six years for reasons that I give in the book, and then I resumed for 10 years. But overall, over 20 years, I did 73 high-dose LSD sessions following Stan's protocol. And this is a, a regimen that I wouldn't recommend. I really don't recommend today. With hindsight, I realized that I really pushed myself harder than was sometimes wise. But I used a lot of precautions. I did all of the classic training and precautions for doing fully internalized sessions with a sitter. My sitter was a clinical psychologist whom I was married to at the time, Carol, using very carefully selected evocative music. Basically, let me mention, I worked with high doses of LSD initially because I was still thinking in terms of a model of individual awakening or individual healing. And I, I was thinking, I knew that karma, according to the Eastern models, it was finite karma. And basically, I wanted to accelerate my own spiritual development. And I thought that if I could sustain the intensity of the confrontation, I could basically bite off bigger bites of karma in each session if I worked with high doses rather than melt it more slowly with low doses. And it was simply a matter of efficiency. I did, it was hard to hit time for these sessions in a dual career marriage. And I just thought I would work a little harder, more aggressively. And that turned out that was a, based on a completely false set of assumptions. I found that in my work, Within a few years, I was entering into domains that were far, far beyond anything that made sense in terms of an individual model of transformation. I began to understand that my sessions had catalyzed something that was aimed at nothing less than some type of healing or transformation of the human species as a whole. So working with very, very high doses, since existence is unified from the very start, working with high doses that hyper amplifies consciousness 
it changes not only how deep you go, but it changes how wide you are when you go there. So it activates a larger field of consciousness, which then triggers the cycles of death and rebirth that workings with psychedelics therapeutically does. So I did this for 20 years and I finished in 1999. And then I digested those experiences for another 20 years. This is a very challenging undertaking. It took a long time to connect all the dots and to absorb them. It took me five years to write the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I was thinking I would be much more comfortable writing this book posthumously, holding it and releasing it posthumously because it is so exposing in the sense of your most intimate relationship with the divine. But the mother told me, no, there's no time for that kind of (laughs) indulgence. The word it was needed and it would mesh, it would support other people in their work and our times that we were going into historically, we all hands on deck, you know, all hands on deck needed to come forward now. Uh, Beautiful. And, it really does feel that this work you did and really was work of exploration with these psychedelics and the writing of the book really is, was done out of a very large motive. And as you said, it was, it was work. I I was struck by just the, you know, our culture has this very naive media view of psychedelics as being done for, you know, getting high and having a good time. And yes, that can happen. And you had some extraordinarily ecstatic experiences, but you also went through the hell realms, not once, but multiple times. And as you describe, having to open to levels of not only your own suffering, but collective suffering, the history of human cruelty, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this was extraordinary. I, I just found myself bowing to the courage you had to bring to this time after time after time. And yet you always seem to find that ultimately there was a value in, in the suffering. Yeah. I wonder if you could say what kept you going and what kind of value you found there. Well, this was the great gift that Stan gave me in his work. He taught me to trust the process. And that was affirmed in my own experience. And my experience was if you completely trust the process and let your session take you where it wants to take you, it may get worse and worse. You may enter experiences that are completely inscrutable, that completely horrifying. You don't understand why you're going here or what sense it makes. But if you surrender to it completely, this will come eventually to a culmination and you'll be taken through a death rebirth cycle. You, some part of you will die, will slough off. You'll be taken into a transition. And through this transition, you will awaken into a different reality, into a different level of reality. And for the remainder of that session, you will experience teaching or experiences within a completely ecstatic framework. So there is the purification side of a session and the ecstatic side of a session. So what you internalize at the end of the day is not just the suffering, 
but the entire cycle that suffering reaches a peak, there is a culmination, there is a breakthrough, and then there's joy and ecstasy and, and communion, and then integration at the end. It's the balance of the joy and the ecstasy of insight with the purification process that makes it manageable. If I had to go through all the suffering for years without that ecstatic teaching, I would not have been able to do it. As it was, it, it was difficult. When I was going through the ocean of suffering, which was in the third and fourth years of the work, fifth, fifth year of the work, the morning of a session was difficult because I had a sense of what I was getting into and where it was going. I'd, but I don't think it's any more difficult than a soldier on the eve of a battle or a mother on the eve of labor, you know, if it's, especially if it's your second or third birth, you know what you're getting into, you know it's going to be a hard day, you gird your loins and you prepare for it. And for my case, I don't think what I did was any more exotic than someone who wants to climb Mount Everest or someone who wants to go to the North Pole. Personally, I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want to climb Mount Everest, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I do understand the explorer's mentality. I wanted to see. I wanted to understand. I, I wanted to know. And no matter how deep I went, I found that there was always more that I could be shown, that, that would be shown me. Did you feel you were being held or guided, in some sense, taken care of in this Absolutely. journey? Absolutely. And every step along the way, when I would go through this consciousness was waiting for me. And I might not understand the logic of the sequence of the pairing of things for years. In fact, there are certain things that I only began to understand when I wrote the book. But as I went through, I had a basic structure, enough to know that there was a logic to this process. And I always felt met. I felt met and engaged, sometimes very consciously where I would ask questions and it would orchestrate my experience, but always there was an intelligence meeting me, taking me, educating me, breaking me down, beating me down to dust, taking me further, taking me back over and over again until I understood something. And then it would take me deeper. And there was a systematic progression to this process. I found that this systematic progression was really important because there's so many levels of consciousness that it can take you into. But when you enter a new level of consciousness, it's very disorienting. I mean, it, it just cognitively is confusing. And this manifests by not being able to remember everything that happened to you. You just don't have a framework in your mind to hold it. But if you go back to it again and again and again, and you're systematic and rigorous and you record carefully, your system will acclimate and you will learn how to stay conscious in dimensions of reality that previously had swallowed you. And I actually began in time to realize that this deeper consciousness was titrating the experiences of transcendence, giving me time to absorb and acclimate even though sometimes I wanted to run on, it kept me and fed me 
in small steps so that I could retain and hold what it had been giving me. Because the purpose I found was not simply to transcend and experience some form of ecstasy. The purpose was to bring that ecstasy back into your time-space consciousness and first hold on to it, remember it. And then secondly, digest it and let it seep into your bones as deeply as possible. And you talked about in the book is how you framed or you became to understand that the hell realms, suffering realms that you would have to visit were for your benefit and they were for purification, that they were getting you prepared for the revelation. It's complicated. I mean, it took me about two and a half years to go through what Stan Groff calls the perinatal dimension of consciousness, the perinatal level where the the purifications are very intense and the physical purifications and emotional purifications, which eventually for me ended in ego death, you know, like just being shattered, my entire physical identity being turned inside out. And then the ocean of suffering began. And in the beginning, I thought this was a deeper form of personal suffering. It was a deeper form of ego death. But eventually, and this is why I wrote Dark Night Early Dawn, at core to answer this question, to solve the riddle, why did the suffering get as large as it did? And the conclusion I came to is that it really wasn't aimed at my personal transformation at all. It was aimed at healing the human species, that the human psyche in an aggregate form at the collective unconscious, there are wounds which humanity has still not healed. The things that we've done to each other in war, the terrible disasters, that all the suffering that human beings have accumulated, not all of it has been healed. And that there are vast tracts of the collective psyche where this suffering still festers. And I think every spiritual tradition recognizes that in deep spiritual practice, you have an opportunity, you don't have to do it, but an invitation is sometimes extended that if you are willing to take on some of that suffering, literally just to become aware of it, it can move through you and resolve itself, just like our personal suffering enters into our awareness, moves through us and resolves itself. And so for two years, I did the ocean of suffering work And it wasn't really until about halfway through that, that I began to understand that this wasn't for me. It was for my family. It was for the human family. And only later did I begin to understand the historical circumstances of our times that made the healing of the human family, the healing of our past, so important in order to clear the foundation, so to speak, to allow an imminent transformation to take place in history. And I'm sure that gave you, you mentioned girding your loins up, mm-hmm. that gave you that warrior or soldierly perspective. It's not just about you, Chris, you know, to, to do this thing that was way beyond, way beyond any human capacity to survive, I would believe, just, just on its own, but to keep coming back. And, and it shifts from, from being an individual quest to everybody and everything. And it may be the case that this well, it's largely a function of my choice to work with these very, very high doses at 
blow you so deeply into the deep structure of reality. But I think one of the things I learned, it, it may, this may not open for everybody. Everybody may not enter these domains. One of the things I learned over the course of my journey is that this was a task which my soul took on before I was born. So this was part of my karmic choice to do this work. So it wasn't forced upon me and it wasn't a tragedy. It was simply part of my life's work. And the universe more than rewarded me for this phase of the work because following the ocean of suffering, it took me places in the ocean of suffering. And afterwards, it more than amply paid me or repaid me for taking this work on. As always happens, whenever you do anything for others, the universe has no choice but to give back to you because the universe acts out of oneness. So if we do something for others, it always comes back to you in one form or another. Beautiful. And it sounds as though this shift you went through from the assumption with which you ended this work that you were doing it for your own understanding, revelation, transformation, and yet you were forced almost against your <laughs> inclinations to, to see this in a larger context, that you were in some way, some mysterious way, both opening to and allowing yourself to be an instrument for the transformation of collective consciousness. And I can certainly understand that was challenging because it's a very different, it's a different worldview. It's a very different set of assumptions about the nature of ourselves and reality that even makes that recognition possible. And I, I can certainly understand what a shift that was. Would you like to say more about that? My first concern was that at first it sounded like ego gone amok. I mean, it sounded like ego inflation. And so I really had to sit with that for a long time because my experiences were telling me that was not what was happening. But the larger challenge is, as you said, Roger, this is a very different worldview. In the classic individual patient model, you, the individual is having experiences. So you, the individual has transpersonal experiences and the individual is always kind of at the center of the circle. But in this model, my individual existence was completely secondary to this dynamic. And so it becomes not a matter of my being being central to what's happening, I got the system, I got something started, but I dissolved completely into pre-existing fields of consciousness. And these fields of consciousness are what are the dynamic force having these experiences. So it manifests not only in the ocean of suffering, but it manifests later when I was going into archetypal reality and causal oneness reality. It's hard to describe, but in many ways, in many experiences, I was like, Chris Bache was like a bit player. Uh, <laughs> not that it's like there is something going on. This is so challenging that the, in the book, I have an appendix, which in the appendix is what dies and is reborn. When you experience so many deaths and rebirths, it becomes a, a cognitive 
question, what is it that's actually dying? It feels personal and you experience it. Is it just ego dying over and over again? And the answers that I offer at that, in that part, I, I know push very, very far. I mean, because on the one hand, it's ego, and then it becomes species ego, and then it becomes something I call the shamanic persona. But in the end, what is dying, I think, is literally some aspect of cosmic consciousness or some dimension of cosmic reality is softening and surrendering and opening up to a still deeper dimension of cosmic consciousness. And this deeper dimension of cosmic consciousness pours its blessings into me at the very bottom, but it's not primarily into me. It, it pours it into the deeper dimension of cosmic consciousness itself. And I know those are very hard concepts to entertain. And it's a it's a very different way of thinking, and it's tentative, my description. But something along that order, I think, is required to understand when you explode consciousness this radically. And again, I don't think it's wise for people to, to explode consciousness this radically. I would work with lower doses. I'd work with psilocybin, gentler substances, if I were doing it over again. Here, we have to appreciate that LSD in this quantity, when it's contained, when it's intensified in a therapeutic modality, you basically just shatter your consciousness and dissolve it far beyond physical limits. And you spend hours dissolved into some stratum of the universe, and then you congeal and consolidate it, and then you shatter, leaving your historical existence radically behind and dissolve into some fabric, some stratosphere of consciousness, and you live there for a while. It lives. You are it part of it as it lives, and then you congeal and bring it back and hold it. Beautiful. I'd love to tease out several things you said, but, but mm -hmm. I do want to ask a very specific question. That is, you've referred on several occasions to the very high doses of LSD used. So mm -hmm. might you just tell us what doses you did use? Yeah, I aim to be working at 600 micrograms, but because I wasn't using a pharmaceutical identified dose, I would say 500 to 600 micrograms to be safe, but it was not less than five. That is a lot of LSD, yes, yeah. <laughs> put mildly. <laughs> I want to tease out your description of this very remarkable phenomenon of the, of the death-rebirth experiences, which is found as a and recognized as a very important experience and a literal birth experience, spiritual birth experience across the world, spiritual traditions. It's deliberately sought in traditions such as shamanism. And yet you describe it 
in not an entirely new way, but a, a radically expanded way as a repetitive process of dying to one identity uh, and limitation after another, after another, after another, reconstituting a new, more porous, expanded identity, and then having to offer that into, into the whole. And let me just see, check my understanding of death, rebirth against yours, and have you respond from your enlarged perspective. To me, it seems that what actually dies, what we confuse ourselves to be, and what actually dies in the death-rebirth experience is our self-representation. We mistake a self-image or a self-concept or a self-narrative for our true self. And what needs to die is that representation. So it dies, we find ourselves opened to a much larger perspective and possibility, both of our own identity and of the nature of reality. But for some reason, I tended to think until hearing you just now, I tended to think of for psychological reasons, psychodynamic, habitual patterns reestablish themselves and uh, another self-representation forms. But you're putting this in a larger, more cosmic or ontological perspective, suggesting that an even deeper understanding of the, of the death-rebirth would be that one that as part of the cosmic play, the Leela, the formation of the universe by the two cosmic beings that you describe in one place in your book, that separation is built into the game, the cosmic game, as Dan Groff would call it. And that what I'm understanding you to say is that identity is reconstituted in a, in a rebirth process because of the very nature of the, of the universe and consciousness, that consciousness separates so as to play again. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah. I think your description of ego death is spot on. What dies is what is consumed is our self-representation, what we have, our sense of identity that we've amassed from our physical experience and our time-space existence, our time-space experience. And I also want to mention that every, every medicine has a certain range. It has a certain you know, signature, and it has a sort of power and a range. Psilocybin has a certain depth of range that even if you repeat it, Many times it will reach you, take you into the upper register, but still there is an upper register. Ayahuasca has a range, and maybe I think of it as a deeper upper register. Uh, Salvia divinorum has a range, ketamine and 5-MeO-DMT. All of these substances have ranges. Now, one of the things... And LSD has a range. And of course, then we start looking at doses and how doses affect the range. Now, I tend to experience psilocybin as a very body-grounded type of psychedelic experience, very much tuned to my emotional body. It opens up a range, but it stays in a sense within the parameters. It stretches, but does not shatter as aggressively as LSD does the parameters of individual identity, but it can dissolve them, soften them, and open us up. In my experience in working with high doses of LSD, 
is that all of these things happen, but because of the particular intensity of this substance and its lack of history anthropologically, it's, therefore it doesn't have the feels associated with it that psilocybin and mescaline or peyote have associated with it. It tends to shatter our time-space identity and throw us in a level of experience that lies beyond that reality, in a spiritual reality. But if we go back to that place again and again, our experience there begins to congeal and we develop an alternative identity persona. I call it the shamanic persona. It is an identity which is comprised of all of my experiences at that level of transpersonal reality and it's kind of superordinate to my individual egoic identity. But it's stable. If my experiences have been well managed, it's stable so that when I go into a psychedelic space and I transition away from time and space and I enter into a familiar sense of self at a certain level of spiritual reality. But if, and I acclimate there, I, I learn how to stay conscious there. I learn the ropes and then I, but if I keep pushing the edge, if the chemical is strong enough and if the intent is focused enough, eventually, in my experience, you come to the ceiling and at that ceiling, there is a cost that's exacted. Another round of death takes place. But what's dying is not the ego. What's dying is that shamanic persona or that second identity because that second identity is a holder of a certain level of transpersonal experience. And if you want to go deeper, you don't need to, but if you want to go deeper, you've got to die at that lower shamanic level. And so the shamanic identity dies and you transition into yet another level of reality in which the whole workings of the universe is different different rules, different phenomena exist, different bandwidths, so to speak, and you must acclimate to that level of reality. Every step deeper into the universe is a step into a higher level of energy. And to acclimate at a particular level of reality, you must acclimate to the energy. And that's some of the, the very, very intense cleansing that continues to take place 30, 40, 50 sessions in is because you're learning how to stabilize consciousness is extremely high levels of energy. And that just takes a long time. So what eventually came out of all of this is an understanding that death and rebirth is stage specific that there are many levels of the universe. And if you systematically push through those levels, there are gates that you come to, so to speak. And at each gate, there is a sacrifice asked. Now, at the end, eventually, once you've died so many times, death becomes a meaningless concept because you always learn that you're always going to be reborn. Some essence of our identity will continue. The phoenix always rises. Eventually, the concept of death as an interpretation of what's happening yielded 
to a concept of purification. I learned that all dying is in fact purification. It's just that when purification reaches so deep, it's destructuring whatever self-representation or whatever reality representation you're operating within, it becomes purification unto death. It's actually dissolving the structures within which you are holding reality. So it's, it's death, but it's a fluid death. It's a purification process. So, so Chris, following up what Roger asked about what dies, well, what doesn't die? Because in your book, you talk a lot about reincarnation as been, being a given yeah. in, in the universe as it was revealed to you, this universe, yeah. multiverse, whatever this yeah. mysterium tremendum is yeah. that, that you've brought back to us to talk about. So what doesn't die? Well, I think when we go deep, we realize that everything is dying constantly. Everything is dying and living and dying and living constantly. There are, there are no stable things which are not dying in this universe. And to see that clearly, is, of course, is, is considered a great accomplishment to really understand that everything is temporary, everything is transition, everything is moving Everything is fluid, holding on. You know, people have asked me, what is it that dies? And, you know, what I will say is there is, there is always continuity of memory. If you organize your session well, there is continuity of recall. So, therefore, there is continuity of memory. You might say that memory doesn't die, but I don't really think that's the best way to describe it. I think memory is shattered and reconstitutes into it. I don't know what doesn't die, but here's- Something is being purified, right? What is that that's being purified? Yeah. Well, I'd go farther and say, I think that in this process, that life gives birth to individuality, not an ego, not a self, but life is giving birth to an individuality. And the nature of that individuality matures and deepens as the soul- matures and deepens, and as one's spiritual experiences deepen. The Vedantic traditions and many spiritual traditions basically believe that the individual is an illusion, and the goal is to shatter the illusion and to dissolve irretrievably into the oneness of all existence. I understand that cosmology, but I think it's a mistake, and it doesn't jive with my experience. Yeah. My experience the universe is very intensely interested in birthing an individuality and in aging that individuality and refining that individuality and maturing it so that in the end, we die, but we die in order to grow up and we die again in order to grow up. In the end, this is what I call the birth of the diamond soul, that reincarnation basically is aging us stage by stage, level by level, helping us grow and to become more than we were, more than we were. But sooner or later, we reach a point where all of our former lives and all of the history, all the experiences and wisdom and mistakes we've made, all of it comes together into an integrated singularity. And as I've experienced that singularity, when I experienced that happen in my sessions, there was an absolute, I was catapulted into a state of awareness beyond anything I had experienced up to that point in time. I was an individual. 
but I was an individual in pure shunyata, emptiness condition, transparent, open to all existence. I was individual, but within a boundless existence, but I had my full memory intact. And I think that this is where the universe or the divine is taking all human beings, that individuality is not the problem. Separation is the problem. Ego, boundedness is the problem. Individuality is not the problem. Individuality is the great beauty. It's one of the great gifts that the Creator is giving us, the opportunity to be an individual. Join us for part two of this remarkable dialogue where we dive deeper into these and other intriguing topics. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.